I'm sure there's times where, for all of us, the flame of a real faith can burn pretty low, and somehow we need something to, to fan us back in, in, into life again. And I think that's why we've been given this breaking of bread service, which we can, we can do on our own, we, we, we can do in twos and threes, or, or, or in the, the ecclesia, in, in the larger, larger church, but we've been given this by the Lord, so that we, we have at last something once a week or so that is, is real and is concrete and is actual, that we can actually get, get a real solid bread or, or wafer, wine or, or juice, and at last, at long last, after all the abstractions of faith, we have something solid that we can actually, actually hold in our hands and know that this is a symbol from God of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, we, we love. And I'd like to draw your attention to a passage in, in Hebrews chapter 12, where the writer is talking about the power of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ and, and the power of, of the blood of Christ. And he, he says there about how the, the old covenant was created um, with, with a, a great trumpet sound and with an earthquake. And he talks there in uh, Hebrews 12, verse 24, <clears throat> about the blood of sprinkling, the blood of the Lord Jesus, the blood of the new covenant, which is exactly what we're remembering here, that speaks better things than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not when they refused him that spoke on earth, how much more shall not we escape, whose voice then shook the earth? But now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So I think what he's saying is that the old covenant, there was at Mount Sinai, that, that there was a, a great big earthquake and trembling, and even Moses feared, we're, we're told, even he said, I exceedingly feared and quake. But the blood of sprinkling, the, the blood of the Lord Jesus, shakes this world even more powerfully. To the extent that the writer says it can shake absolutely everything. Absolutely everything in life can be shaken by the power of the blood of Christ. And he says there, as we've just read, that the blood of the, of the new covenant speaks better things than the blood of Abel. So the blood of Christ speaks something. What I, I take by that is that insofar as we behold the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and we think, reconstruct in our own minds how, how it all would have happened, we cannot be passive to that. There is a message in what happened and how it happened. This was not just the death of any man. This was the death of the only man who never sinned. And so this is why when we come to the breaking of bread and we try to, to reconstruct in our minds what happened and, and the whole wonder of the Lord's death, we are motivated, we are shaken, and we cannot respond to this passively with a sort of indifferent attitude, still stuck in the mire of, of mediocrity. We can't, because if he died for us, there is a message in him. This idea of there being, as it were, a message associated with the blood of Christ is actually quite quite common. I'd like you to have a look at uh, 1st of Corinthians chapter 1. 1st of Corinthians chapter 1 where 
Paul is, is talking about the power of, of the gospel. And, uh, sorry, uh, uh, yeah, First Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. Sorry about that. In the King James Version, it says, The preaching of the cross is to them who are perishing foolishness. In the RV, it says, The word of the cross. And that's the idea. The word of the cross. What does that mean? The word of the cross, the word which is the cross. In other words, the cross of Christ is the word associated with it. That the cross of Christ, in that sense, speaks to, to us. And that, as I say, we are to take a message from it. It speaks better things than, than that of Abel. And so, when the Lord Jesus was born, and he was a, a little baby, you remember Simeon took him in, in his arms, and the, the references in, in Luke 2, verse 35, where we're, we're told that, he prophesied over that child. Luke, uh, Luke 2, verse 35, he takes this, must have been, I assume, a beautiful baby, unusually beautiful baby, it seems to me, uh, in his hand, and, and he says to Mary, Yea, a sword shall pierce through your own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So he's saying to Mary, one day this child will grow to, to manhood and will be pierced in the heart with a, with, with a, a spear or, or, or a sword, and that's also going to happen to you. You will see this, and we know she, she, it seems she, she did see this, and your heart will also be pierced when his heart is pierced. But the, the, his point is, Simeon's point is, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. We've said that the cross of Christ and the blood of Christ speaks something. There is a message in it. And here we start to meet the idea that by encountering the death of Christ, by seeing it again in our mind's eye, our thoughts are revealed. Our thoughts are revealed. And so we come straight into the idea that we are familiar with in First Corinthians chapter 11, that at the breaking of bread, this is a time of self-examination. And yet, does that mean that we are to ask ourselves to, to list all our sins, as it were, before we take the bread and wine? Not at all. The whole context of Paul's giving that passage in 1 Corinthians 11 is to say that, unfortunately, the, the church in Corinth had been getting drunk. They, they had not been focusing upon the Lord Jesus as they should have done. And so he's saying, do it properly. And so, when we're told to examine ourselves, in the first instance, he means make sure that you're really thinking about what you're doing, that you're thinking about the Lord Jesus. And yet, there is a kind of a double meaning attached here, because insofar as we think about him and his death, we inevitably end up thinking about our own response. Self-examination in that sense comes quite naturally to the person who is reflecting upon the Lord and, and his time of dying. It, it must be like that. Now, 
I'd like to just push a little bit further in that passage in, in Luke 2 that says the thoughts of many hearts are going to be revealed. Revealed, we could say, to whom? To ourselves? Maybe. But I think also to God. What I mean by that is that it seems to me that we show God and he understands where we're really at. We, we show God who we are and he sees where we're really at by our attitude to the broken of bread. In other words, the thoughts that pass through our minds and we think of the Lord's death and resurrection for us reveal to God the real state of our heart. Now you could say, yeah, well, God knows all things. He knows the state of the heart, etc. That is so. He does see and know all things. But that does not preclude, if you see what I'm saying, that he has a mechanism for doing that. And it seems to me that, therefore, it's quite reasonable that he would use our response to the breaking of bread to, as it were, search our hearts. And there's a key verse to all this in Proverbs 20, verse 27. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching the innermost parts of the belly. The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord. In other words, how does God search our innermost things? Well, he does so for our own spirit. I'll leave you to think about that. But what I'm trying to say is that I think that the, the breaking of bread is a classic example of this. That it's designed to help us to search ourselves, to reveal the thoughts of our hearts to ourselves, and yet in the same process it is revealing them to God. And that's why this is, or should be, or can be, particularly, I think, when we break bread on our own. It can be a very, very close moment between us and the Lord. That is a mutuality that's possible for you and me tonight through this bread and wine. You remember also Joseph, and he gets his cup hidden in the, the top of Benjamin's sack, and then he brings them back, and it's called his cup of divination. And he says to them, don't you know that a man like me can certainly divine? And I, I know you can't push these types too strongly, but Joseph obviously was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so isn't it strange that Joseph had a cup through which he perceived his brethren? And he used that cup to show that to his brethren, to teach them. This was the whole point of that whole exercise with Joseph and his brothers. The whole point of it was to teach them their guilt, their sinfulness, their need for his salvation. And it's a very close parallel, it seems to me, with, with the cup of the Lord Jesus. Paul says, if we would judge ourselves... We should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. This is he's talking 1 Corinthians 11 there, 31 and 32, about the breaking of bread. So it seems that what he's saying is that if we will judge ourselves, we don't need to be judged by God. In other words, his judgment is our judgment. Our searching of our hearts is his. And I think the idea of the breaking of bread is that we should come to the point where we are convicted that we should be condemned, judged in the sense of condemnation, 
and realize that, wow, I should be, but I will not be. And in that sense, we have a foretaste of the judgment right here and now in the speaking of bread. You might remember that there were some people who saw the crucifixion of Jesus, Luke 23:48, who beat upon their breasts. And there's only one other time in Luke where the idea of beating upon your breast occurs. And it's in Luke 18, verse 13, where the publican beat upon his breast and said, God, have mercy upon me, the sinner. And when he says, God, have mercy, it's actually the word that's later on used in the New Testament for propitiation, atonement. Basically, he's crying out for the cross. He beats his breast in, in knowing that he's a sinner and basically says, God, please give me atonement. Make an atonement, a way of propitiation for me. And the only other time, as I say in Luke, where you've got men beating upon their breast is before the cross of Christ, at the crucifixion scene. So it seems to me that there were those who saw his physical death in reality who were convicted of their sinfulness. Now that is the whole idea, I think, of what, what we've got here in, in 1 Corinthians 11 about, about self-examination. So... Another example of this, of where we are to be convicted by the cross of Christ and by our presence, if you like, before it, of our sinfulness. And it goes like this. It's not a, uh, an easy thing to grasp, maybe at first, uh, at first hearing. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. And here you have a vision of what is called the Lord high and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 6 from verses 1 to 4. Well, starting at verse 2, he, he, uh, uh, Isaiah sees this vision, the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And verse 2, above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. Verse 3, one cried to the other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Then verse 4, there is an earthquake. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. The house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah is convicted of his sinfulness. He says, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and mine eyes have seen the king. And then out of that same vision, there comes one of the seraphim, touches his lips, and says, lo, this has touched your lips, your iniquity is taken away, your sin is purged. So out of the same vision that condemned him, he gets this forgiveness. And then what does he do? Verse 8, he hears a voice saying, Whom shall I send on a preaching mission to Israel? And he says, Here am I, send me. Now what's all this about? First of all, verse 1, The Lord high and lifted up. Oddly enough, Isaiah uses that very phrase in Isaiah 52, verse 13, which is at the beginning of this suffering servant prophecy, or the most well-known of the, the suffering servant songs, where the Lord Jesus is described on the cross as being high and lifted up. In God's eyes, of course. He was despised in the eyes of men, but high and lifted up in the eyes of God. So then, the connection gets more exciting when we go to John chapter 12, 
And we find that in John 12, the Lord Jesus quotes both these passages, Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53, together. So he obviously saw a connection between them himself. And then John, in his commentary, it seems, in, in John 12, says that Isaiah 6 was said by Isaiah when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and spoke about him. So, the vision of the Lord Jesus in Isaiah 6, high and lifted up, Isaiah 53 tells you that's talking about the crucifixion. Okay. This is talking about the crucifixion from God's viewpoint. There's a, an earthquake and temple opened and the, the, the posts holding up the veil brought down, etc., etc. All very reminiscent of the crucifixion. But I think this is a vision of the crucifixion from God's perspective. In the eyes of man, I mean, the Lord was finished. He was covered in blood and spittle, been betrayed by his friends. He was nobody. But in God's eyes, he was somebody. In God's eyes, he was great and glorious. And out of that vision, Isaiah was convicted of his sin. Woe is me. But then out of the vision, he is cleansed. And his response is, wow, I must do something. Okay, you, you need a witness made? Okay, well, here am I. If you want to send me, send me. So then the Lord Jesus was lifted up in glory in his death. And yet, of course, you know from Matthew 25, 31, that when he comes again, he will sit upon the, day, uh, on, the uh, on the throne of judgment. In glory. So really, the cross was some kind of judgment. Of course, he said in John 12, coming up to his death, now is the judgment of this world. When they hit Jesus upon the, the cheek, Micah had prophesied about that in Micah 5 verse 1, where he says the judge of Israel, that's the Lord Jesus, shall they strike upon the cheek. So he was then the judge. Now do you see the connection? We come before his cross. This was the judgment. And therefore we have a foretaste of judgment when we come to the breaking of bread. Let me try and put it another way. You might remember Zechariah 12 verse 10. It says they shall look upon him whom they pierced and mourn. This definitely talking about the crucifixion of, of Jesus. And it's quoted in John 19, 37, about the crucifixion. When they pierced him, it says this was fulfilled. When it says in Zechariah, that they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and more. But it's also quoted in Revelation 1, verse 7, about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. That, again, men will look upon him whom they have pierced and more. The idea is that when he was pierced, that was the judgment of this world. And the same process in its essence will be worked out again when he comes back. That's why it's been observed that when the Lord died, in a sense people were split into two categories. There was the thief who believed and the thief who didn't. There was the, the centurion who believed and the soldiers who gambled over the Lord's clothing. There were those in the crowd who believed and those who didn't. There was this division made very clearly between people.
And so as we come to the bread and wine, we come into his presence. And in a sense, we have this judgment experience. You may or may not have noticed that several times in that passage in uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, which talks about the, the breaking of bread, there is a great emphasis on coming together. And you may like to just circle those words in your in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, he says, When you come together, he's talking about the breaking of bread, this is not for the better but for the worse. Verse 18, when you come together in the church, there are divisions among you. And he's talking about the breaking of bread. 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, it's not possible to eat the Lord's Supper. 33, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, and he means to eat the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. Verse 34, and if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. So the idea of coming together, gathering together, is very commonly used then about what happens at the breaking of bread. And yet, this is the very idea used about gathering to judgment. For example, Matthew 25, verse 32, says that when the Lord comes, those responsible to him will be gathered to judgment. And it's the same word used in Matthew 18, 20, where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. Don't forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Hebrews 10, verse 25, again, I would submit talking about the breaking of bread meeting. Same word in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 1, where Paul says, I beseech you, by the Lord's coming, and our gathering together unto him. Again, I'll say the same word, Hebrews 10.25, don't forsake to gather yourselves together at the, at the breaking of bread. The idea of gathering together around the, the bread and wine, the cross in, in symbol of Jesus. This is the very same idea as gathering around the Lord Jesus at the day of judgment. So, as we break bread, we are having our foretaste, if you like, of judgment. Now, just a point on 1 Corinthians 11, verse 29. I don't like to make points that depend too much upon fine points of Greek text. But just in passing, you may be interested. Verse 29, I'm reading from the RV. He that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. The unworthily, in the AV, where it says, he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks judgment to himself, that word unworthily that's in the AV is actually omitted in a lot of texts. If that's correct, then it would read, he that eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. In other words, our judgment we are working out now. We make the answer now in terms of our whole attitude to the Lord that we show to him at the breaking of bread. The thoughts of many hearts are revealed. So he says in 29 <clears throat> that we should uh, examine ourselves. So, verse 28, so let a man examine himself, 
of the breaking of bread. And this is the same word that you've got in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, talking about the final day of judgment, when we're told that in that day every man's work will be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. Because it is revealed in fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. When we read that the fire will test or try every man's work in the day of judgment, it's the same word here in Corinthians 11, verse 28, examine yourself. There's going to come a day of judgment which will be like fire, which will test all of us. We're all going to pass through that fire. And yet he says here we should test ourselves now. So you see what I'm saying? That the process of self-examination of the breaking of bread is really a foretaste. It's a dry run of the day of judgment. And it's more than a dry, a dry run. It actually indicates to God the real state of, of our minds. And as he says, if we would condemn ourselves, we will not be condemned. The whole purpose of judgment is for humanity to realize that we should be condemned. And yet, in faith, to realize that, yeah, I should be, but by his grace I will not be, because the whole purpose of this breaking of bread is the equivalent of the Jewish Passover, and it's in order to, to remember that we are saved. That's the whole point of it, in, in another sense, that we are remembering that great salvation, that we have been redeemed out of Egypt. We're now in the wilderness, walking towards the promised land, but we have been redeemed from all our sins, from the power of sin and death. That's why Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, three times a year all your males must appear before the Lord at these the three main feasts. When somebody comes into the presence of the Lord, they are revealed before him. But the question is, you know, revealed to whom? Well, revealed to him, but also to themselves. That's, that was the idea. That, that, that was the uh, intention. So, we can't really escape the fact that the breaking of bread is like a T-junction. It's a T, it's a T intersection. That there is no particularly, <laughs> there is no third way, and there is no way to wheedle out of the whole thing. This is a T intersection, and the very use of the symbols, or, or, or the the choice rather of the symbol of, of a cup of wine, I think is absolutely relevant. Because what does a cup of wine symbolise? Well, the cup of blessing which we bless. I, I mean, this is the idea that this is the the cup that symbolizes God's blessing and forgiveness. And yet, what else does a cup of wine symbolize in the Bible? Babylon is given a cup of wine. The nations are given cups of wine to drink as symbols of their condemnation. So when the Lord offers us a cup of wine, you see how it goes. This can be to our condemnation or to our blessing. And that is why Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 11, 34, make sure that you're coming together and you're eating together is not unto condemnation. 
Because you, you can drink and eat condemnation to yourself and also blessing to yourself. And that idea of a double symbol is, is very powerful. It, it, it really is very, very powerful. And I think that that's why the Lord has set this breaking of bread up in, in the way that, that he has. If we then say, well, all right, so I won't do it. I'll, I'll, I won't keep this broken of bread. Then, you know, we, we come back to how it was with keeping the Passover, that the, the person who does not keep the Passover, we're, we're told, should be cut off from amongst the people. So to flunk it and say, ah, yeah, well, I, I pass. <laughs> you can't do that either. But, you know, it's all going rather negative, and I don't mean it to go in a negative direction. God wants us to be saved. This is the whole wonderful point of the good news. It's not a possible news. It's not maybe good news. It is good news that you and I have been saved. And the whole idea, as I say, of the breaking of bread is the equivalent of the Passover, that we are remembering that great salvation. And I know we can't be passive to it, but it's not so much as if that is a command, you shall be motivated, it's more natural than that. If we perceive that I, with all my sins and all my dysfunction, and all the things that I don't do, that I should do, and my sins of commission, omission, etc., etc., if the whole lot is taken away in Christ, if we are washed as we are, in his blood, which we're taking to ourselves, to remind ourselves of this connection we have with him. If this is so, and it is so, then we should be able to say that if the Lord Jesus returns right now, I will be saved and I will live forever. I know we might say, well, you don't know, you might lose your faith tomorrow, you might kick it all away, like throw it all away next week or whatever. Well, all right, but let the, you know, don't worry about tomorrow, the Lord says. My point is, if the Lord comes right now, right now tonight, we should be able to say, and I mean, we can say, with humility and, and with an acceptance of His grace, His manifold grace, that by His grace, I will live forever. That I'm expecting His coming any moment, and that I will live forever. Now, that's good news. No wonder we celebrate it. No wonder we have to keep Passover. They have to. We want to keep Passover, just as Israel should have wanted to keep Passover, to remember that great salvation. So, you see, what we have dealt a little bit with the more sober side of it, because that is there, without any question. But the fact is we are saved and we shall be saved eternally because of what he has done. And this is not just hype. This is not tapping under the chin and saying, no, you know, it's all going to be all right somehow, we hope. No, you know, I'm genuinely persuaded of this because the Bible tells me so. You know. And so, yes, the greatness of it and the soberness of the fact that God has met with man in judgment, in the, in the cross of Christ, and has met you and me here tonight, especially I feel before the emblems of, of his son. That is a very sobering thing. And yes, it does demand an awful lot of us. 
But, you know, let faith cast out your fear. I know so many of you wander between faith and fear, confidence and, 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 and almost depression and, and nervousness about what the outcome of our whole destiny is going to be. That is decided. It really is. And if you ask yourself the most basic question, why was all this necessary? Why did Jesus have to die? And why did he die in the way that he did? Why not just cut his throat? Why not drink the, the, the cup of, of poison and die? Why, why was all this necessary? Because God can save anybody anytime he likes, how he likes. He doesn't have to have all the sacrifice of, uh, of his son, etc., etc., crucifixion, all, all this. Why? Why, why, why do we need all, all that? Why did it have to happen? And I think the answer is, well, it didn't have to happen. I mean, I know some people will say, oh, well, it had to happen because it had to fulfill the types that were there in the Old Testament, da 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 Well, yeah, to me, that only throws the question a stage further back. Like, yeah, and? So, so all the same, well, why were the types there? God could have done it another way. That's pretty clear. So why was it like this? I think it was like this, because God, as it were, is screaming out in the streets, Get it! I love you, and I want you in my kingdom. And your sins, and your failures, and your dysfunctions are not enough to keep you out of my kingdom. And that is why, because you guys down there sort of thing, don't get it, it seems, so we'll have to have this dramatic demonstration. I will give my son, I will have a son who's like you, who has your nature, your representative, and I will give him to die for you. Now, do you still get it? He was covered blood and spittle, spat out, rejected by you guys, but all the same, I loved you. All the same, I didn't give up on you. I didn't frazzle your planet. I rose him from the dead. And I've called you to believe in him. Now that's why we had good news this evening to celebrate.